0: Hi, everyone. This is Olga Mack, working from home, building the future of contracts. And today I am here with Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, please introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Anne-Marie Kiplin. I'm the founding and primary attorney at Giblin
1: Law PLC, and I'm a cyber lawyer.
0: Great to have you here. Um, We recently had a fantastic conversation um, about uh, e-contracts and AI, and I thought it would be interesting to explore it in further depth. So to begin our conversation, tell me, uh, define AI and, and maybe e-contracts so that we have a shared baseline of definition on which we can build this conversation.
1: Um, so e-contracts is really broad. It really can mean anything that's being done virtually, which is pretty much everything these days. Um, but I think in my legal view, I would really define e-contracts more of where you have an agreement to sign it virtually. So you are meeting some type of e-signature law, or you don't have a physical meeting to come and actually execute the contract in person. Um, And we can, and obviously there are exceptions to this. Um, For example, a will, you can't do that over a will. You can't sign it virtually, but there are several contracts that do fall under this definition Um, and artificial intelligence in particular will definitely impact those contracts more than other contracts where you actually do have to come in person and have someone physically there to sign it. Um, Artificial intelligence actually is a really hard term to define and there's no common legal definition. There's really no common uh, regular definition. Um, If you Google artificial intelligence, you'll find 10 different definitions in 10 different places um, and they all will have some element of commonality but nothing that everyone will agree on. Um, My general definition, I actually looked up Merriam-Webster just to see what they said on it because I feel like they're the definition experts. Um, And they defined it as a branch of computer science dealing with the simulation of intelligent behavior in a computer or the capability of a machine to imitate intelligent human behavior. Are we fully there yet? I don't think so, but we've made leaps and bounds over the last few centuries with the advent of the internet and how much data is available. Artificial intelligence has actually been around since 1950 and we could see it throughout our lives. Even myself, I grew up with no internet. I don't wanna date myself, (laughs) there was no internet. Um, But once the internet came in, this explosion of available data, that's when artificial intelligence really took off because it it needs the data to learn and grow and
0: actually create the intelligence in artificial intelligence. We find that data is an input in many disruptive technologies from AI to blockchain. And really um, when uh, I have conversations with leaders, legal leaders about how they can prepare themselves for the future, disruptive technologies, whether it's AI or anything else, um, the actual number one thing that I recommend is take a look at your data, make sure you have great data um, on on things that you want to automate or streamline, because it's really hard to automate and streamline if if you don't, if you have garbage data. Um, And the one way to prepare for the future is to have good structured data um, it will really be an input into anything uh, that is disruptive from AI to blockchain and definitely a good way to start thinking, you know, how data flows in your organization, your department um, and how you can leverage to, to do things you know, bigger, faster, cheaper. Um, and that's ultimately the promise. Um, I, I like that there is, um, I find it ironic, like it's a strong word, I, I find it ironic that there is no definition <laughs> of AI and I think some of the fears of AI stem from the, fe- the fact that we can't define it. The unknown. <laughs> the it is unknown. Um, and so we kind of have a like, very amorphous discussions about that scary it. Before and that's we, especially
1: true for lawyers, by the way. We hate not being able to define something.
0: <laughs> yes, it, absolutely. Um, before we talk about the role of lawyers and, and maybe the headaches AI creates, Maybe let's talk a little bit briefly about the overview of current regulations that um, would affect the formation and execution of a contract and, and kind of how AI may, may play into that.
1: Yeah, and I'm gonna be going into more detail with this with a slide deck too, eventually. But um, right now we do have a various um, states that have e-sign laws. So um, in certain states, and depends on where you're located and obviously especially for in-house counsel, it depends on where the contract is either being executed or where it's gonna be enforced. You really definitely need to take a look at your e-sign laws, um, but the, vary, the requirements vary. Um, first of all, many state laws do require that you actually agree to have an e-sign uh, requirement so that you can actually sign it virtually. And without that agreement beforehand, uh, you, it probably won't be affected. And you do see cases coming where people are trying to enforce these agreements without this requirement. And in some cases they get shut down in some cases they don't. It's still a new body of case law and it's definitely being developed. One that I'm watching really closely. Um, another interesting thing that's happening because of internet, everybody working from home, obviously you and I are doing this from home. You can see I'm in my home office. Um, Everything is over email now. And I've seen some really scary case law where, you know, Obviously, going back years ago, even though I'm a young lawyer, <laughs> um, well, you know the only thing we had to worry about before the advent of everything being virtual was the statute of frauds. If there's a meeting of the minds, you put it in writing, and that's how you know there's a valid contract. You know, obviously, there's oral contracts, and whether or not they're enforceable is always a litigation point. Um, but in general, if you have something really important that you want, it should be in writing and meet the statute of frauds. In the case of an email where you're negotiating terms and actually going back and forth with the language, there have been cases where you have inadvertently satisfied the statutes of frauds and and an e-sign law, and you've basically been held to enforce an email as a contract. And they've gone through entire strings of email and said, yeah, this checks every box and we're gonna enforce it. And that's something that is the nightmare of litigation attorneys. And I'm sure many people watching this as well too, especially if it's something that you have not finalized or gotten your consent from your client from. So that's definitely something you wanna be mindful of. Um, And then obviously you just have normal case law of contract language, but we're still moving into this area and seeing how artificial intelligence and these e-sign laws are going to more heavily impact. And on top of it, when you're bringing in cybersecurity and privacy requirements, how those things are going to change the way that we negotiate and actually put things in writing.
0: I love how this discussion takes me back to the bar exam of tactics of fraud. Whoa, <laughs> PTSD, uh, PTSD—that's what we're talking about here. Um, moving right along into <laughs> non-PTSD-related questions. Um, let's talk about the case law development and, and formation of execution of the e-contracts. Um, especially as it is sort of happening in this remote environment.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go into more detail about this too soon, but um, in our in our next conversation. But, you know, basically the, the thing that makes me most concerned, again, is going back to the emails. And one of the scariest cases I saw was um, someone just had a signature at the bottom of their email, which we all have. You know, you send your out your thing, you have your firm's name at the bottom. And that actually was held to be a signature for a contract. That's terrifying because whether or not that person actually meant to do it, the court said that that satisfied enough of the statute and the the actual requirements of a contract to satisfy consent or assent that they actually said, okay, we wanna be bound by this contract. Um, I've seen other cases where they were still heavily in negotiation and trying to get things going um, one in particular, it was uh, an agreement to purchase, I think a property and they had an agreement where they essentially agreed. They had all the terms in the email but they never put it to writing and neither side signed it. The one party backed out that wanted to sell when they wanted to try and sell the other party moved in and said, hey, we have a contract. You said you were gonna sell this to us and this is enough to satisfy it. Um, and things like that are starting to become more common because now it's not just a conversation between people. Either you have it on Zoom, and that, that I could see that becoming the next thing. Hey, I have a video of us negotiating this contract, and we said we were going to put it in writing. Can this, can this count? You never know. Um, but actually using the email chain or whatever you're saying back and forth to say that we've actually created a contract, and now we're going to try and go forward with it. Now there are definitely cases on the other side that say, no, hold on. You didn't satisfy this law. You didn't satisfy the statute of frauds, and there was no consent beforehand to actually sign this contract virtually. And those are really important cases too, and which goes back to what jurisdiction are you in? Where are you trying to get enforced? And make sure that you're complying with all of these laws.
0: Let's actually, while we are in law, let's talk about cybersecurity and privacy. You mentioned it a couple of times, how e-contracts could be affected. I practiced law long enough for 15 <laughs> years in various roles, both as a big law, Fortune 500, numerous hot startups, uh, being the general counsel, security and privacy has been the repeated theme of my career and my early interest in this subject is really maybe responsible for my career growth. Help me understand how the cyber, and I, I'm not sure if I like cyber, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, McCarthy-era type of term, um, but you know, security and privacy issues, um, how do they uh, shape e-contracts?
1: In so many ways. Um, and, you know, I, I I was in an in-house counsel for a while. So you never want to be the attorney that's always like, this the sky is falling. The litigation is coming, which I wait, feel wait, like isn't I, it falling? <laughs> <laughs> basically, basically. Um, but, you know, as a litigation attorney, and I, I feel like this colors my whole life, um, you can always see what could go wrong. So you it, it's definitely a balancing act between convenience, efficiency, and making sure that you modify the risk. Now, obviously we're in a current environment where the regulation on cyber security and privacy is exploding. Now, if you look at the European Union and the GDPR and all of the new regulations that they're coming out with to supplement the GDPR, it's a very difficult environment there. Um, In particular, the GDPR actually does talk about artificial intelligence and does have specific rules for when artificial intelligence is making decisions for people to make sure that there's some type of backstop there. Um, There is this this term in the artificial intelligence community called black black box issues, where essentially an algorithm is out there doing its thing, making decisions, and there's really no way to, to determine how they made that decision. What data do they rely on? What are they using? Even if you go back and look at the algorithm, you still can't get into the heart of the artificial intelligence to give a reason as to why. So it's very easy if, if you, a perfect example, if you go apply for a job, you send your resume in, and this happens all over the United States and Europe right now, and they scan your resume for keywords and you get a rejection letter right away. Well, why did I get rejected? If I was a person looking at your resume, I would say, okay, well, you didn't have the requisite experience. We're looking for someone in a different locale. We're looking for someone with this. You can't go to an artificial intelligence and ask them, how did you make that decision? Why did you reject this resume? And in Europe, you can't do that. If you have something like that, where it's a job, where someone's looking for some type of benefit, you have to have a person on the back end of that artificial intelligence looking at that decision and taking a second look. In the United States, we don't have that yet. Obviously the CCPA this year, um, California's Privacy Act, has definitely been the, the number one law to go into effect in this regard. And it still doesn't go as far as the GDPR in those regards. It's more about giving us more control over our data if you go back in the United States, traditionally privacy law was always consent. And I used to do a lot of presentations with a plaintiff's lawyer who did very well in this area. And he always used to call it the myth of consent. And I always like to steal his term because it's accurate. Because if you look, for example, your, your any email account, zoom that we're on right now, if you look at the privacy policies, it's how many pages long, are we going to sit there and read it every time? No, but we're going to click consent, right? (laughs) So, And that's perfectly fine. There's actually case law that says that's allowed. If you look at it and you click consent, even if you don't know what it says, in the United States, that's fine. The only rule is that the the company itself has to abide by its own privacy laws. So let's take that to e-contracts. When we're doing something like that, where we have an employment or we're doing it even between arm's length between company, we have to make sure that not only is there any consumer data, is there any forward-facing data, but something that could be leaked or hacked. Between companies, it gets even more worrisome because there's actually no regulation saying that one company has to protect the the secrets of another or the private information. That's almost exclusively done by contract. So if you're in a very sensitive negotiation and you're exchanging proprietary information, you probably need an agreement beforehand to make sure that there's no disclosure or taking of that information. But the concern becomes with artificial intelligence is how do you get that information out of the artificial intelligence? A lot of the new artificial intelligence now is based on machine learning where they go out and they do unsupervised learning. And part of the way that that works is that they're trying to actually mimic how we think, but that means that they remember it. So every piece of data that an artificial intelligence gathers, they use for their next problem. There's really no way to go back to that program and say, wait a minute, I have proprietary data that you used in my last contract. I need to take that out. There's ways that you can build little walls around it so that it can't be disclosed, but there's really no way, as far as I know, and again, I'm not a technologist, to actually pull that out unless you completely shut down the program. Um, The best way I've ever heard this problem described is by a law professor who essentially said, it's like when you make a cake, there's no way you can take the eggs out of the baked cake. At that point, you just have to smash it and start it again without eggs. So that's one issue that's definitely concerning. Um, on the second is obviously the black box issues we were kind of talking about. If you don't know how the the algorithm is making a decision or how it decided something, and it's in a contract that affects a consumer or another business, and you can't explain that away, you might be held liable for it. We don't have any way to actually determine who is liable for artificial intelligence yet. Um, we came very close, unfortunately, um, in the physical space. And I actually think that this is where These liabilities will shake themselves out because as we have the internet of things coming into the physical world, and being able to hurt people. So the unfortunately, we had a a terrible example with an automated car that actually hit and killed somebody. That was actually a, a case I've been watching really closely because they did sue the manufacturer of the car, who had the automatic, the artificial intelligence driving, and it actually got dismissed. It went back to another country, which was determined to be the proper venue. But that was a really novel case to say. All right, well, are you liable? Is the manufacturer liable, the person that made the artificial intelligence, or was it the person who was driving the car and fell asleep? Because that's what happened.
0: I don't know <laughs> if you heard about this. It was yeah, no, story. I know that case. And actually, I really like that we talk about things that matter because things that matter in the end is liability. <laughs> well, I mean, that. I mean, that's the thing that you
1: know. It keep at the end of the day. You know, we can talk. I could spend all day. I'm a total geek on these issues. But how's it going to affect clients? How's it going to if you have to go into court and argue these issues? No one's going to care about oh, artificial intelligence is making our lives easier. No, how who's liable for it? If I'm hurt
0: or I'm getting sued, who what can I blame? <laughs> you know? Um, but no, I, no, really I mean, can- that, I mean, and, and in the end, this oh, this philosophical exercise, you know, what is AI? What does the law say? And 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 really, it comes down to responsibility. And, and and blame and yeah. often you know in the way we express it in our society is through damages right through yeah. financial damage so uh, so that's why I said you 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 that great conversation and you finally moving into the conversation of what we all care about you know yeah. the bottom line it right? how will money change hands and very curious to kind of you know you know how this you know very physical experience of Autonomous vehicles uh, will actually, you think, be uh, at least suggestive. Uh, maybe an outcome be- to for contracts or e-contracts.
1: Well, yes, yeah, see, no, I actually see. I think the way it's going to evolve, we have a traditional body of case law on contracts in general. Do I think all of that will apply to e-contracts? A thousand percent, especially ones that are even generated. We have, we all have case management systems. We have contract management systems. Everybody is using these things to make our lives easier and better. But at the end of the day, if there's a problem, who do we blame? Now, right now our immediate way to find that answer is in the physical world with personal injury because that's actual damage. And then you can go through the analysis of who owns the liability. And the autonomous car example is a really great one because that's actually a technology that's out there in the world right now, moving at the speed of light. I have never seen so many authorizations for a new technology to actually be out in the physical world as with the autonomous cars. Um, We're talking truckers going out there and moving stuff across the country, autonomous taxis picking us up. There's no driver. If no one's driving the vehicle, who do we sue? I mean, especially for lawyers that actually do personal injury cases, not only is that going to change their lives dramatically because their caseload is going to be a lot different, but it's going to have to change the analysis from damage to responsibility. I personally think that it'll be akin to a product liability analysis where you essentially hold down everyone down the line because it's really hard to blame someone specifically for a failure. So let's take an autonomous car. You have an autonomous car. It can drive itself. That's wonderful. I'm going to a a party. I decided I wanna have a glass of wine. I'm not gonna drive. Let me turn on my AI. It's driving me home. Now I rear end somebody. Was it my fault? I wasn't driving. I'm allowed to use the AI. It's totally fine to use it. Well, what went wrong? The artificial intelligence went wrong? Or was it the person in front of me stopped too short? Um, Or who gets blamed? So I rear-ended you. In a traditional car accident case, I would be liable. I had no problem. My insurance pays you. That's it. But now, whose fault is it? It's probably the artificial intelligence. Either it messed up, it misjudged, something happened, something broke. But what if I've had that car for a year and I never took it in for maintenance? What if I wasn't patching any of my cybersecurity and I got hacked and I just didn't notice it? Now am I liable because I didn't take care of the car? Or is it going back to the manufacturer who designed the program and it wasn't working properly? And that's how these questions are gonna get resolved. It's gonna be someone like that. I, I got injured, I'm not at fault. Someone else is, and someone needs to pay for my damage. And when the court starts going through that analysis and really breaking down those liability questions, talking about the bar, going back to like a straight tort analysis, um, I think those analyses are gonna be very easily transmitted into the contract space where the stakes aren't as high as far as someone's life or injury, but they are just as high as far as someone's data, proprietary information, holding someone liable to an agreement or mo- monetary damages. And I think it'll be a very easy fix to say, well, let's take this analysis and apply it to this
0: body of law yeah i love this conversation <laughs> let's actually shift gears a little bit because you know this makes my head spin just a little um <laughs> and uh we're borderline going case law get you know fully fully geeky so maybe let's step say back and the role of a lawyer in this opportunity of autonomous vehicles, autonomous decisions, automated decisions, e-contracts. What I'm hearing you say, I'm hearing you say a lot of things, but what I'm hearing you say loud and clear is that lawyers will not be obsolete anytime soon. No. Tell me if I'm mistaken. No way. And obviously I have a lot of self-interest in that answer because
1: I'm a lawyer, um, but not lawyers are not going anywhere. What, what is gonna happen is our job is gonna change dramatically. Um, think of the most annoying or boring thing that you have on your to-do list today and five, maybe 10, I would say probably five, but maybe 10, 10 years from now, you're going to have some type of program that's going to be able to do it for you. Um, And a lot of that comes to contracts. Contracts can be really boring. You know, who wants to read through, I mean, privacy policies for websites. Those are really boring. (laughs) Who wants to read through those, you know, as a lawyer, we have to do that now, especially with new policies or new websites or, new ventures to make sure that all the I's are cro- dotted and all the T's are crossed. Eventually, and even very soon, we're, we're having programs that are doing that for us. We can say, we want um, a non-disclosure agreement and press two buttons and it's created for us. And then we just have to kind of eyeball it and make sure it's good out the door. Um, those tasks that a lot of lawyers dread or you know, are bored by, they'll be replaced. So they'll be easier. It'll be something more of a supervisory role. Um, but we're still gonna need lawyers. We just still are. There's gonna be new things that develop. There's gonna be new causes of action. Um, For example, one day artificial intelligence may be your client, if you think about that. Now let's go back to the autonomous car example. Who owns the AI? Does the person that owns the car own the AI? Does the manufacturer that made it own the AI? Does the software developer own the AI? Or will we get to a point where the law actually treats the artificial intelligence as its own entity? That's a huge question right now that Libra scholars are kind of academically, you know, throwing around. But in a practical sense, it very possibly could be that the artificial intelligence stands on its own and it needs representation. (laughs) You never know. Um, It could also be-
0: I mean, technically the question is, is there a corpus? (laughs) Yes, I think that's. Well, then we're talking about robots and cyborgs and that's like way out there.
1: but again, you never know. I mean, and and actually, there already there already are robots out there. Believe it or, you know, there's there's like care robots and stuff like that. But that's that's a whole other topic. Um, I also think artificial intelligence will, will be a subset of the law as well too, where we're going to need lawyers that are well versed in it and understand it, especially as the case law develops around it, because it will be slightly different than cybersecurity and privacy, where you're talking about someone's data, their right to actually own their data, know where it's going, know what's happening to it, and then your obligation to protect it if you have it. Artificial intelligence creates a whole new host of difficulties that is in addition to that because they have the data and they're actively using it, but it brings it into the physical world in a, in a very scary way. So you're going to see a, a subset of cyber privacy law
0: build around AI as well too. Interesting that you think it's a uh, subset of cyber um. I think everything is cyber though, so I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I guess I, I'm not so to point to that out to you. Um, <laughs> you know, aside from, you know, possibly having AI as your client and, um, uh, you know, more complex issues uh, how else do you think the practice of law will be impacted?
1: Um, I think a lot. I think some areas of law will just no longer be necessary. Um, and I, I hate to beat up autonomous cars, but um, there's a very robust practice in the United States of, of automobile litigation. Um, I, I actually cut my teeth on that when I first started and came out as a lawyer, and a lot of lawyers do, um, you know, just suing over car accidents. Is that even gonna be a thing anymore? You know, as we start, and and the United States is moving really fast towards getting autonomous vehicles on the road as fast as possible. Um, There's already several mandates when a car manufacturer makes your car to build in several autonomous safety features. I actually, the other day just happened to me, I was in the parking lot. I went to back out, my camera was on. I didn't see someone zooming in and my automatic brake stopped. And thank God it would have hit my car. Um, So things like that are already built into our car. We're only a few steps away from having the ability to have the car drive itself. When you have autonomous vehicles on the road and they get into accidents, you're not talking about, is it John Doe or Jane Doe's liability and whose insurance pays? You're going back to that analysis of, is it this car's artificial intelligence or this car's artificial intelligence? And then it does become a product liability analysis that changes a lot of things. So car accident lawyers really probably are not gonna have uh, much to do or they're gonna have to change and adapt to become more product li- like product liability lawyers. And then on top of it, manufacturers of cars and the software that's enabling them, um, including even gas stations that have to be more enabled as well too, they're gonna to have to change their analysis and their risk profile as well because now they have more forward facing risk. And that's just one example of how legal areas are changing and growing. With that said, the old areas will be gone, but new areas will come like artificial intelligence. Um, and then different things too of having these little contracts before contracts or how you're practicing law and bringing cases into court, um, how artificial intelligence and cyber concerns are affecting people in their real life Going back to that job example, you're gonna have a new subset of employment law that's already building on how people are getting selected for interviews, how they're being evaluated at work, how much of it is autonomous, how much of it is being done by a person, and what is my right to that as an employee? Um, So you're still gonna have uh, the need for lawyers again, but law and and the areas of law are evolving and changing. Um, And as an attorney, especially if I was a younger attorney, um, which I think I still am a young attorney, by the way, <laughs> um,
0: but you know, in fact, in fact, you go to law school to discover a fountain of youth, because you see, if you were to become a model, you know, in this world, you know, your value will diminish, unfortunately, over time, but as a lawyer, as you age, you become much more valuable. Hence the reason why I went to law school as opposed to model, this is, Total joke. <laughs> um, I have no chance of becoming a model. But uh, but if you want to discover a fountain of use, do go to law school. Um, that is my pitch for law school. But yes, go ahead. <laughs> oh yes, no, but no, but it's true. But you know,
1: I actually the last time I spoke to lawyers, I said to them, you know, it's great to go out there and get your experience, but you really need to take a, a look forward. Is is this going to be an area of law in five years? Um, liabilities are changing. The actors that are liable for things are changing, and and damages and injuries are changing. You know, even now, if you think about it, mental health issues are becoming more of a damage than they used to be. When I first started practicing litigation, and someone said that they, ha- you know, had a, a mental illness or they were had some type of mental um, defects from a, a damage, we kind of were like, "All right, prove it." You can't really prove it. It's totally different now. You have online therapy. You have people doing cognitive assessments. That's an area that law that might explode. I mean, there's so many ways that our connected lives are changing the way. That we communicate and, and relate to one another. And along with that comes risks and liability. And then that's my paranoid lawyer <laughs> view on the world. Um, but it's interesting. And I, I think it I think from an academic geeky perspective, it's exciting because it gives lawyers, it frees us up a little bit to kind of do more of the thoughtful stuff and think about these things and, and really kind of get into the legal know-how of, of a case or of a Uh, even a contract like getting into the heart of the contract let's negotiate the meaty terms as opposed to worrying about i have to comply with section 137 of this law you know that type of thing and and in a lot of ways it's great um but for some practitioners that are, are really embedded in other ones they may have to pivot
0: yeah that's you know i i really love this conversation um maybe let's talk a little bit about you know i guess AI headaches or you know opportunities um, that um, that may be uh, unintended and maybe ways we can think through how to mitigate them in the uncertain regulatory and uncertain case law environment. You know, this is this is something
1: that for especially for in house attorneys, um, you're really going to have to keep mindful of how the regulations are evolving and changing because it's really. I mean just right now we just had an entire bill pass where all anti money laundering regulation was just updated which changes a lot of compliance programs for a lot of companies especially financial institutions. So we're really seeing this happening in real time and there and on top of it too we don't have and this is going back to cyber but I think it really does impact artificial intelligence. We don't have a federal cyber statute. We don't. We have healthcare laws through HIPAA, we have financial laws through various different federal laws, but there's no overarching federal cybersecurity law, every state does it. So you have to comply with 50 different laws in 50 different states. And that's the same. And if you have a multinational corporation or a national corporation that also has to deal with EU, or they're located in every single state, especially California, you're dealing with really onerous compliance regulation and problems um, that AI always seems to be the solve, um, but it doesn't always necessarily mean it's gonna solve all your problems. It can create some new ones. So again, going back to what we talked about before, artificial intelligence only works with data. If you have data that you're not supposed to be maintaining or holding and the artificial intelligence is using it and there's no way to get it out, how can you comply with a right to be forgotten law? You can't. If you're having black box problems with an artificial intelligence that's making decisions for you, um, and eventually, these laws may come to the United States as well too. And you can't explain how your artificial intelligence made a decision that affects a human person. That could be a problem. Um, some other issues that people may not even think about: what about at arm's length negotiation? You know, you have two corporations now, um, Business A and Business B, and we're coming together and we're negotiating. The court would say, "All right, you guys are on equal footing. It's not like some consumer just asking for a contract of adhesion. You know, you're actually coming together and you're negotiating." But what if you're a large corporation, corporation A, and I'm a small corporation, corporation B, and I can't afford the AI that you can, and your AI is a lot better than mine and has a lot more data. Is that on equal footing? Are we at no longer at arm's length there? Mm -hmm. Who benefits from that? Who detracts from that? Uh, And then too, if someone makes a mistake, if if a, a term's put in there and my AI misses it and your AI misses it, and neither of us want that, but now we're both trying to be held accountable for it, Who's liable for that? Do we, you know, so things like that are going to start to become problems. I think, I really do think that eventually, as people use more artificial intelligence in the negotiation, you're going to have to start a negotiation with some type of like proceeding agreement where you kind of lay out these issues beforehand. So, again, you'll still need lawyers for that. Um, Another thing could be too um, artificial could help us in that regard because they can keep up with case law and research a lot faster than a lawyer. So, case law comes down quickly, it could change an entire term or statute or, or whatever you need in the contract and the artificial intelligence will know before we do. So do we need to go back and change that? Is it Can we rely on it? Um, those issues will start to, to become as well too. Um, making sure, and then this is another issue is maintenance, making sure that the algorithm is working. So you're gonna probably have to do some type of audit, especially from a legal perspective um, and making sure that any vulnerabilities are patched or hacked, it, that they can't be hacked because again, The artificial intelligence is using data to power itself and move forward and make these decisions and make our lives easier. But that means it still has the data and itself, the artificial intelligence itself is a proprietary data. So we have to protect the AI, but we also have to make sure that the data that it holds, especially if it's valuable data or someone else's data, isn't compromised because we could actually be held liable or the company could be held liable for that as well, too. Um, So, so many different ways that artificial intelligence can be very easy, make our lives easier, but also create new legal concerns.
0: I love it. Very complex. That's my ultimate takeaway. We are not looking at simple life, people. We are looking at (laughs) a fairly complex landscape. Um, If you had any concerns that robots will take over the world, and lawyers will be absolute. I think this conversation is on point to tell you that you are mistaken um there's there's a lot of learning to do there's a lot of opportunities to help your clients there's a lot of opportunities to grow and impact the world so definitely do not give up on law just yet um to to maybe um and on the looking forward and helpful note for you know i think what's fairly certain is that law is changing yes relevant law is changing facts are changing you know, Some underlying contract laws are staying the same and they will definitely apply, but there's also a lot of new applications to different facts and there's new bodies of law that are developing um, and new business models that are developing. Um, so we are looking at a moving target. Um, and no matter where you are in your career, where you're just graduating from law school, where you've been a few years out, whether you're in-house, big law government or anywhere else, or maybe even you're five years away from retiring as a lawyer, um, I think it is fair to say that we all will have to do at least some learning, and some of us will have to do quite a lot of it. Um, if you were to give an advice to the profession, you know, to lawyers as, as professionals collectively, um, how to prepare, how to stay on top of it, uh, how to prioritize the education and 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 being effective and really of use to your clients and to your companies, um, what are your maybe top few uh, um, best practices of how we can collectively uh, stay as effective, maybe even more effective in this very complex changing landscape? Well, I I do want to note one thing. um, And
1: I know for a fact, one bar association already, I think it's Florida and I have to double check that. Um, there are ethics rules being built in that actually mandate lawyers stay ahead of this. Um, not only the cybersecurity regulations that we have to protect our clients information, but that we do have a duty of technology to keep abreast of these changing things and how they could affect our clients. So it's not only a best practice, but it could be a requirement depending on where you practice. Um, my, my thing is read. I, you know I think I spent, everyone has their routines in the morning and I think my first few hours of every day is just reading everything and reading beyond the law. You know, obviously, different legal publications that are really case law focused are really great, but finding publications that talk about these issues on a less abstract and more real life role not only help you to connect it to what is going to the legal community, but do keep you abreast of how it's actually going in real life. You know the autonomous. Again, I, I feel like I'm gonna kill this autonomous vehicle. I talk so much about it today. Um, but it's a perfect example. You know, if you if you're just paying attention to the law to the news and you're seeing, hey, you know, I'm I do a lot of car accident defense and I see now cars are driving themselves. How's that going to impact me? You know, taking a little bit further with that um, and and going through with it. I'm following different people that are are really onto this um i'm starting a blog too so if anyone wants to follow me i definitely will be talking about these issues not to self-promote um but there's yes, several
0: promote it's a totally normal thing to do yes, yes. <laughs> follow follow and marie's blog i'm sure it's going to be interesting and she loves cars and cars are a sexy subject so definitely <laughs> to follow her uh, but yeah, but you can find different people that are
1: talking about this. There's so many different legal blogs that are starting to come up about this issue now. Um, great publications that that are just for free. One that I love to follow, actually, and it's kind of a niche one is called Mary Talk, and it only talks about federal cybersecurity and privacy requirements, but for federal contractors and employees. But the best thing about this, this actual website is that they, they talk about things that no one else is talking about. They're talking about new rules and new you know things that are coming out, new technology. Um, so finding your websites or your your niche blogs that you visit, and signing up for newsletters and things of that nature. Obviously, keeping up with your CLE requirements, um, and and just I think you know also too for for, for attorneys that are um, in bigger firms that have the ability utilize your younger associates. I mean, they come in and they are glued to their phone. They're glued to technology. They're probably up on things that they don't even realize are gonna impact your practice. Talk to them, see if they can update you. Maybe get a younger associate who's more in tune with social media and different things and finding different news sources to, to keep her eye or his eye out for things that are emerging and just send it to you. You know, The, the combination of a younger and experienced lawyer and a more seasoned hand who can actually interpret that information better and how it's going to impact the practice. That could be a really winning combination. Um, so I guess my main thing is read, read, read <laughs> um, and get out there and talk to people too and try to attend. There's a lot of free events out there that are talking about legal tech and privacy. Um, and then just really trying to keep abreast of the changing laws. But again, going back to different influencers like myself, who are going to be um, keeping abreast of this for you and updating people via a blog or some type of newsletter or something is, is probably the best way to do it.
0: I love it, those are great advice. Maybe the only thing I would add is, my previous company, I was a, at a blockchain company where we were building protocols, security protocols, and I was actually knee deep, not giving legal advice, but building. And you learn a lot by building. Um, it really is you know, learning by doing, and it's a very powerful way. You definitely, when you're on a building team, even if it is a fraction of your time, you really understand the limitations of what's possible and the possibilities that are possible. It's a little bit like when you're giving privacy security advice, it's very useful to go through the exercise of mapping the data flow. Uh, yeah. your, your advice will be so much more impactful and uh, much closer to reality than not. Um, and if you have an opportunity to be part of university project that is building things or part of a startup that is building things, it's an, a, a fantastic way to learn uh, anything really. So that's my only pitch if you have that, but, and Marie, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, not only because, you know, cars are always uh, <laughs> a, a fantastic conversation, um, you know, but also because I've learned so much uh, and uh, really excited about the future and and the role of lawyers, and the learning opportunities, and most importantly, the impact of AI on the future of law. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. uh, I hope we can do it again. Yes, thank you. This was amazing. I had so much fun, and I
1: love these topics. I'm a huge geek when it comes to cyber and artificial intelligence and privacy, so this was really fun for me. (laughs) Thank you so much.